The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. Good morning. I invite you, if you would, to turn in your Bibles to the book of Revelation, chapter 1. I'm going to read the entire chapter to you this morning. And uh, follow along in your Bibles if you brought them with you this morning. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to the servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before the throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us of us a kingdom of priests to God, the Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna, to Pergamum and to Thyatira to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe, and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs on, of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in the furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held the seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his hands on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I'm alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you've seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. 
As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we come before you this morning in holy reverence and awe for who you are. We pray, O oh Lord, that as we do this brief overview of this chapter this morning, that you would give us a fresh glimpse of who you are, of what you've done for us, and what remains yet to be done by you very soon, in a time that you've told us is near. Open our hearts to hear your word this morning. Open our minds to understand it. And may we be recipients of the very blessing that's promised in this first chapter. Even today, we pray for your glory and your honor. Amen. Well, I don't need to remind you of this, but we live in troubling times, right? We talked about this a couple of weeks ago when we looked to the words of, of Jesus and realized how important it is as believers to live in times such as these with a peace that passes understanding, the peace that comes from Christ, that that is our testimony as believers when the world around us is troubled, that we're to be people who are not troubled, we're to be the people who live at peace within ourselves because we're at peace with God and who live at peace with other people. And I hope that that's what you've been thinking about in these last weeks. I've certainly been reflecting on those words and, and reminding myself that there's, there's a watching world in the midst of a lot of trouble that's paying attention to how I talk and how I respond and how I behave and the attitudes that I display in the midst of a world that's troubled. And the world is troubled around us. There's no doubt about it. This has been a bizarre year on so many fronts and all around the world, not just here, but all around the world, uh, it, it's troubled. There's trouble. It's been a troubling year for the church, and even just recently, uh, I, I read a story, it's been just a couple of weeks ago, uh, of, a, of a, yet another handful of believers, faithful believers in a foreign land who were paraded out in public view and beheaded for their faith in Christ. These are realities that are existing right now, this very moment in the world, and many, maybe even most believers that gather on the Lord's Day like we have today and other places around the world face a real and genuine threat because of their faith. In fact, I had read in a, uh, an email just, I guess it was this past week, that in the area where some of our, some of our uh, elders and folks went uh, this past year in Ethiopia, that there was some, some troubling persecution of the church and some burning of buildings and some terrorizing of the believers who lived in that area. In fact, I read a statistic today that said uh, about two-thirds of the believers on the planet right now face some level of persecution. So if you and I aren't facing some level of genuine and real persecution this morning, we're in the minority, at least worldwide, as far as believers go. But even if you paid attention to what's going on in the U.S., you, 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 you notice that, that temperatures are rising and a tolerance for truth is declining. There's less and less public patience for the gospel of Jesus and for the morality that flows from the truth of God's word. And the more boldly people stand on those things, the more challenging it becomes to live at peace with the culture that prevails around us. 
I've been watching sort of closely to what's been going on with Grace Community Church out in California as they've stood up to the governor who's had the churches of that state closed for now well over six months using fear as a weapon to shut down the church from gathering and worshiping and opening God's word and teaching. And you have, at least in that case, an active government of the state and a local government that's at war with a local church, doing everything in its power to stop believers from doing what we're doing in this room today. If that doesn't trouble you at some level, then there's something troubling about that. And if I understand what the scriptures teach about persecution and suffering, and if I understand what the scriptures teach about how God deals with nations that ultimately reject him, I don't have a whole lot of personal reason to believe that these things are going to improve, regardless of what happens in the election. I believe the temperature will continue to rise. And what I've noticed as I've listened to and seen what believers are saying and putting out in the cyberspace, I still notice a, a, a rising level of fear coming from the church. So what do you say to a church, local and corporate, that is existing in the midst of a troubling time that is on the verge, perhaps, at least in our case in the U.S., on the verge of some sort of persecution that could rapidly get worse in our lifetime, maybe sooner, and what do you say to a church in the midst of that that is dealing with a real internal struggle with fear about these things? Well, you point them to the book of Revelation. Because it's into such a, a circumstance that this very book was given to us by God. It was written at a time when persecution of the church was high. It was written into a time when believers at a local level were terrified and were afraid. They needed encouragement. They needed to be strengthened in their, in their sort of fortitude and in their endurance and their perseverance. They needed to have sort of a, a, a fortified peace in their heart that pushes away the fears that were driving their minds and their emotions. And so God speaks to his church and he gives them such a message for such a time. And I can't think of a more relevant place for us to turn our attention this morning and in the seven or eight weeks ahead than to the first part of this book. My intention is for us to spend about seven uh, weeks more in this first, two, first three chapters of Revelation. We won't go through the entire book at this time. We will look at the first three chapters that deals with God's specific message to his church at that time. And perhaps at another day we'll come back. At the end of that, we'll uh, turn our attention to the Gospel of Luke in case you're wondering where we're going and what's happening. But this morning, what I want to do, uh, for, well, for this series, we're going to focus on chapters 2 and 3, the letters to the seven churches specifically. But this morning, I want to just sort of fly through chapter 1 to set the stage and to give you the context so that you understand what this book is, where it's come from, and how the next seven weeks sort of fit into that context of what was going on at the time. So that's our task this morning, and we find the answers to all of that in chapter 1 as, as we see in the Word of God. So we need to ask the question first, what is the book of Revelation? We haven't been studying it, 
And I don't know how much time or attention you've given to that on a personal level. I suspect that probably like most believers, when you look to the book of Revelation, you read through it maybe in your private time, you see all sorts of imagery and symbols that are hard to understand. You see events and circumstances and timelines that are difficult to put together. You hear commentators and pastors and teachers and preachers who will tell you a multitude of different ways that you can look at these things and approach them and understand them. And perhaps, like many believers, you just kind of throw your hands in the air and say, you know what, I just can't, I can't figure this book out. I'm just going to avoid it. Um, and if that's you, then you're in great company. I think that that's probably true of an awful lot of believers. Revelation is a difficult book to understand. It does deal with things that are in the future. It does give us vivid imagery that is very difficult to understand. Much of what we see in this revelation is symbolic, and we have to do some interpretive work to find out what these things mean. And in order to build any sort of a coherent timeline or understanding of these things, you have to have a, a really a working knowledge of the Old Testament, and particularly Old Testament prophecy that dovetails with these things and so I would understand if that's been your approach to the book. This morning, I want you to look at chapter 1, and I hope that at least for these first three chapters, I can capture your attention, that there's nothing really uh, hard to put together in these early chapters. It's actually quite straightforward and clear communication from God to his church. But what is this book? Well, we're told the first thing about it in the verse verse. It says, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him, to show to his servants. So the first thing we find about the book is that it is a revelation, and it's a revelation that he tells us of things that must soon take place. This word revelation is translated revelation in English is the Greek word apocalypsis. That probably sounds familiar to you like an English word apocalypse that we use that's built off of it. And it's a word that simply means the revealing of something previously hidden. This is a book that is a revelation of things that were previously hidden. Previous to God giving this message, the things that are contained in this book largely are things that were unknown, things that couldn't be understood with just human intellect, things that you couldn't dig around and piece together and just figure out on your own. They're, it's revealed truth. It's revealed. It's not primarily a book of human wisdom. It is a revelation. It is a, a setting forth of things that God wants to make known that were previously not known. And I think we could summarize the book by saying that this revelation, what God reveals to us in this book in totality, really could be focused in on two issues primarily. One being the, the full and complete identity of Jesus Christ. We see Jesus in Revelation in very different ways than we see him in the Gospels and in the letters. We see Jesus differently. He's revealed to us in more, in more fullness and revelation than what we find in other parts of the New Testament. And so God reveals to us here. He shows us things previously unknown about the identity of Christ. But he also is revealing to us his plan for the end of the world, right? Much of Revelation deals with the future, deals with the consummation of time and the consummation of creation and how God plans to bring together and to an end all that he began in Genesis chapter 1. And so he's going to reveal some things that we didn't previously know. He's going to give us a sneak peek into the future, if you will. And he's going to show us Christ in ways that perhaps we haven't seen him before. So it's a revelation. Things God is going to reveal. And it's a revelation of things that he tells us are, 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 are to take place soon. 
Many of these events are, are in the future, as we're, and when the book was written. So how far in the future are they? Well, the answer to the question is, we don't know. We're not told. The book does not give us a clear and discernible timeline of dates that you could mark on the calendar. It just tells us soon. Historically, I'm sure you, you would know that throughout the history of the church, there have been many, many predictions as to when these things at the end of time are going to come, right? Uh, you can go all the way back to Luther, Martin Luther, who really believed that he was living in the end times and really expected the world to end within about a century of his life. Clearly, you and I live far removed from Luther, and the world is still turning, right? Many Americans thought the Revolutionary War was, in fact, the, the war at the end of time and that it was ushering in the time of uh, the events of this book. If you were alive, and I suspect most of us in the room were alive, uh, back in 1999, you remember the turn of the millennium and all the predictions of how Christ was going to return and the world was going to end on January 1st, 2000. The billboard you see there is a billboard that was put up just a few years back in 2011 by uh, a ministry called Family Radio, who was led by President Harold Camping. I don't know if you ever heard Family Radio. It was on uh, like 150 stations across the U.S. and uh, produced all sorts of radio programs. And Harold Camping was the president and sort of the founder of all of that. Back in 1994, he had predicted that the, re the rapture of the church was going to take place on September the 6th of that year and had publicized that very widely. When September the 7th came, he revised that to September the 29th of the same year. And when September the 29th came and when he revised it to October the 2nd until he eventually gave up on 1994 altogether. In 2005, it didn't stop him though, 2005, he predicted the rapture was going to happen in May 21st, 2011, and they did a massive publicity campaign with billboards like this all over the U.S., uh, telling people that the rapture was going to happen on May the 21st, 2011. There was even a website called We Can Know, right? You could go there. I don't even know if that website still exists, right? Judgment Day, May 21st, the Bible guarantees it. The little bubble should have told you all you needed to know about that, right? So what happened when 2011 came? Literally, this is important because people followed this, and many people sold all of their possessions in preparation for what they were told was guaranteed in the Bible. Of course, May 21st, 2011 came and it went, didn't it? It came and it went. He then told us that, that what actually had happened on the 21st was some sort of a spiritual judgment and that the real rapture was going to take place on October the 12th, at which point I think he finally gave up or people stopped listening. But you could probably track a hundred other examples of people who have tried to predict what soon means more specifically. But it's really a fool's errand because Jesus was abundantly clear on this issue, right? He said, no man knows the date and the time. That means not Harold Camping, not Luther, not any preacher, not any pastor, not any teacher anywhere is going to be able to tell you a date and a time when these events are going to come to play. So if anyone tries to tell you that, just ignore them. You could probably write off that day, in fact. Jesus was clear. No man knows the date and no man knows the time. The most specific date we get is soon and that the time is near 
That's what we're told here in the early part of Revelation. Now, it may seem odd because it's been over 1,900 years since this book was written to say back then that the time is near. It doesn't seem like that the time was really near if 1,900 years at least were going to come to pass. So how do we make sense of this? I don't want to spend too much time other than to say when we think of who God is and we understand that the timelessness of God, that he exists outside of chronological time as we know it, his perspective of time is very, very different than ours. I would argue that here the issue is not so much chronological time, but the issue is the certainty of the events that are to come. What John, the writer, who we're going to talk about in a moment, and what God wants to reveal to us is that these things in this book that are revealed are going to take place. It is absolutely certain. And in the big scope of his timelessness, every day is soon. And you'll never know when that day is going to come. So the issue is live with the certainty of these truths as though tomorrow might be that day. Bruce Barton writes, we must remember that in apocalyptic literature, which Revelation falls under, the future is imminent without concern for intervening time. These things are soon, and they're coming, and we don't know when they're going to be. The issue is, and the emphasis is, that the message is urgent, and that the people who receive this message must respond immediately. That is the thrust of what's being communicated here. So God's revealing some things to his church that were previously unknown, and these things are going to happen. They're going to happen with certainty, and they're going to happen to some degree soon, and we're going to live as though, and read this and respond to it immediately as though that soon might be tomorrow. So who wrote the book? Well, the human author is John. He made that known several times in here, right? Uh, In verse 1, verse 4, and verse 9, if you were following along, um, where his name is mentioned. Who is John? Well, this is John, the brother of James, one of the two sons of thunder, disciples of Jesus. He was, if you go back to the Gospels, a fisherman who was called to follow Christ with his brother. Jesus encountered them, and he did this miraculous event in this catch of fish, and they were convinced that he was who he said he was, and he said, follow me, and they left everything, we're told, and John followed Jesus. Spent three years with Jesus in his earthly ministry. Was privy to a lot of things that the other disciples weren't privy to. Do you remember? There were times when Jesus would say to Peter, James, and John, you guys come apart with me for this event or that. I remember Jesus raised a girl who was dead from the dead. And John was there to witness that. One of the most significant things that John was privy to, along with uh, uh, Peter and James, was the transfiguration of Jesus, which is critical, I believe, to what we see here in chapter 1, this vision that John is going to see. John was the primary leader of the early church in Asia Minor, where this uh, letter is directed. He is the author of the Gospel of John and the letters of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. He writes Revelation much later in his life, as opposed to his other writings. Probably somewhere around 95, 96 AD is when John was given this and he wrote it. To give you some context, it's about 30 years after Peter and Paul were, were killed. So this is late in John's life. He's an old man when he gets this. And he is, uh, at the time of this writing, the last of the living apostles. If you look back at history, at what happened to the apostles of Christ, 
Uh, John is unique in the one that, in the sense that he got to live to be an old man. Most of them did not. Most of those who followed Christ intimately as his apostles did not live to be old men. They were killed in horrible ways, in various ways, in various places. But not John. John was, was allowed to live. We could argue that he was allowed to live as an old man because God had another message to deliver to his people, and John was the chosen recipient. There's a reason why he's still alive as an old man. Because God intends to use him to deliver this message. John dies uh, as an old man somewhere in his 80s. He dies as the leader of the Ephesian church, and we're we, we, history tells us he died as an old man. Where did he write this from? Well, he tells us in verse 9, he says, I, John, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Patmos is a, a, a small rocky island sort of off the coast <clears throat> about 50 miles from, from Ephesus. That's a picture of Patmos today. Uh, it, was, it was in Jesus' day and, and, and John's day, it was used as a, a, a place where the Roman government would banish political prisoners. It was a penal colony. It was a work camp where they did mining and manual labor. People who were political opponents were sent to this island, and they were uh, used as forced labor. And John tells us that that's the place that he finds himself when this revelation comes, and likely when he had written most of this. This is all taking place in John's life during the, the reign of a ruler by the name of Domitian. You probably don't know much about him, but all you need to know about him is that he succeeded uh, Nero as, the, as the, the Caesar of the time. And he, like Nero, was a terrible persecutor of opponents, and he had no mercy on the Christian church. In John's day, he had issued an edict that demanded everyone in the empire worship the reigning emperor. Everyone worshipped the reigning emperor. And as you can imagine, John was not one to comply with giving to Caesar what belongs to God alone. And so he's arrested. And he's exiled to Patmos because of it. Eusebius, the historian, tells us John was exiled in AD 95 and that he remained there for about 18 months and was released after Domitian's death. Now, Tertullian, another early historian, tells us an interesting sort of story. Whether it's true or not, it can't be confirmed. But he's, he tells us in his history that John was actually captured and he was actually boiled in oil in an attempt to take his life before he's exiled, except that he emerged unharmed from that event and terrified all those who saw it. And so they exiled him to Patmos. Suffice it to say, John was a man who paid a price on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Because he lived to be an old man does not mean he lived a pampered life. He lived a hard life like every disciple of Jesus did in those days. And he faced persecution and he faced terrible things and he faced horrible events and had bad things happen to him and he paid a price for following Jesus. And he says that he was there on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So it is because of his faith in Christ and his proclamation of the gospel that he's arrested and he's put on this island in this penal colony where life is not fun and it is not easy, particularly for an old man. His stand on the gospel and on the word of God cost him dearly. It put him right in the crosshairs of the state at his time. And when he refused to bow down to Caesar, he was exiled. 
He understood persecution, and he understood sacrifice for the cause of Christ. And so that's where John was and what he was doing when all of this takes place. Well, what takes place on Patmos? What are the circumstances surrounding this revelation? If you look at verses 10 and 11, we find what he tells us. He says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book. So John is on Patmos, and he's doing what he does every Lord's Day, whether he's in Ephesus or whether he's on Patmos. That is, he finds a place to worship the Lord on the Lord's Day. And while he's worshiping the Lord on the Lord's Day, something very unique happens. Something unexpected to John. Something that was not the kind of experience that he had ever had before. He tells us simply this experience by saying uh, that he was in the Spirit. He doesn't just elaborate on what that means. All we can uh, sort of ascertain from it is that in some sense, God encountered him in a very unique way by the power of the Holy Spirit while he was worshiping the Lord that day and put him into a sort of situation where everything else in life was tuned out and he was completely tuned in to what God had to show him. And not only did he hear, but he saw things. He was particularly tuned into a vision that the Lord intended to give him. But this revelation doesn't come initially as a vision. It comes as a sound. He said, I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, right? So he hears a voice. There's no mistaking it. This isn't the small whisper of the Lord, right? It is a loud voice that absolutely captivated his attention and called him to attention. And that voice tells him right at the outset, what you see, write in a book. I'm going to show you something, and what you see, you're to write it in a book. So this isn't a friendly visit from Jesus just to catch up. This isn't a, 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 a just a see how you're doing, John, kind of a visit. Jesus encounters him in a powerful way, and he has a clear purpose. He's got something to say, and he wants John to write it down for him. Verse 11, he says again, What you see in a book, write it, and send it to the seven churches. Verse 19, What therefore the things you have seen, those that are, those that are to take place after this, write them, write them. So the book of Revelation is the record of what God told him to write in this vision. That is the whole book. It is his record of what he encounters Jesus Christ and he writes it all down. Did John understand everything that he wrote down? No way. John sees incredible things. He sees things that are indescribable, hard to understand even this far down the road of history. John uses the language and the vocabulary he has at his disposal to sort of describe things that are indescribable. You think it's hard for us to make sense of what he wrote. Imagine trying to make sense of what he saw and finding words to put with it. So that's what this was. This is God encountering him and telling him to write in a book. What he saw must have blown his mind. It was a, a dramatic, terrifying unveiling of the end of the world. So John is the the, the human author, but where does the message come from? It's not John's message. It's, it's a message that has a heavenly origin, right? 
In fact, if you we, if we get the flow of it, this, this message comes directly from God the Father, and it's ultimately intended for churches that are on the ground, but in between there are several intermediaries. He tells us initially that this is a revelation of Jesus Christ, which in the grammar can mean a couple of different things. It can mean that this is a message about Jesus Christ, or it can mean to us that it's a, a revelation mediated through or mediated by Jesus Christ. And most likely, it's both of those things. It certainly is a revelation about him, because we see things about him that we don't see anywhere else. But the issue here also is that God has delivered this message. God the Father has delivered this message to the Son, and he is to deliver this message to John, but he does it ultimately through an angel we'll see in the book. That angel delivers it to John, and John is then tasked with delivering it to the church. So the message comes from God the Father through the Son, through uh, an angel to John, and John to the church. And specifically, it's written to the seven churches. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Who are these churches and why are they? We're going to give a lot more attention to that in the weeks that are to come. But for today, let's just suffice it to say that these are seven very prominent churches in Asia Minor. They're all sort of located in proximity in what's now modern-day Turkey. We're not told specifically why these seven churches were sort of the recipients of this. There were many other churches around at the time. Ephesus was sort of the mothership church, and some of these others were all plants off of Ephesus. So why these particular seven churches? You could read ten commentaries, and you could get 14 different explanations for this. Um, I think two of them make sense to me. Uh, you, You could see by sort of travel Patmos is off of Ephesus, just on that map, sort of to the left. You can see where the red line starts there. So uh, most likely John writes from there, and he has a messenger delivered to Ephesus. And these sort of churches sort of follow a circular pattern on the map that would circle around to these areas and come back to Ephesus. So probably if you were delivering a message to seven churches and you wanted it to get out to the entire region and from those areas further out on the postal routes, that would be a good way to do it, send it to those seven churches. Um, and, and I think probably beyond that, what we'll see in the next several weeks are the issues that these churches were dealing with that God needs to speak to them about are, are issues that churches that have plagued churches historically throughout the history of the church. And so the issues were not simply specific to those, those churches. There are issues that were going to, a lot of churches were going to deal with. And God needed to speak to these issues that were going to have application throughout the history of his church in the future. And so this message is delivered to these seven churches. It's a message that's always going to be relevant. And you'll notice that the message that this, that's being delivered here is primarily a message to the church. God intends to speak to his church through this message. Now, it has a lot to say to the world, for sure, and a lot that applies to the world, absolutely. But primarily, Revelation is a message from God through John to his church. So it's a message for you, and it's a message for me. It's a message that we're going to see is intended to purify his church, and it's a message that's intended to encourage persecuted believers. That's what this book is for. So what is the book about? What is the nature of the book? And how are we to understand that? I'll just sort of fly by uh, some of the things that are highlights that he gives us here in this first chapter. There's no way to really delve in depth to them all. Um, 
But you need to first notice in verses 4 and 5 that we see it's a, a Trinitarian message. It's a message that comes from the full Trinity. Uh, we notice in these verses, he says, <clears throat> a grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. Who is the only one who is and who was and who is to come? That is a, that is a clear reference to God the Father. It is a play off of the Old Testament proper name for God given back in Exodus, the great I am, the one who always was, the one who is, and the one who always will be. It is that same title, proper title for God. It's a reference to God the Father, the one who is timeless, the one who always has been and always will be, the one who has revealed himself in Trinity, though he is one God. He's a God who's eternal and a God who is timeless and a God who is transcendent over time. He faces no surprises ever. But it's not just a message from him, the one who is and the one who uh, was and the one who is to come. And also it says from Jesus Christ. So it's also a message that is in part delivered through the Son. So God the Father has a part in it. The Son has a part in it. And we see this sort of mysterious peace in that verse. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne. We could spend 20 minutes sort of working through all the issues related to what are, how do we understand the seven spirits before the throne. There's only one Holy Spirit. So what's up with the seven? Uh, write, if you're taking notes, write down Zechariah chapter 4, verses 2 through 7. And you can go back later and look at the prophecy of Zechariah. Uh, what you'll find in early part of Revelation and throughout is that John plays off of Old Testament prophecy. He has a very clear and good working knowledge of Old Testament prophecy. And the things that he sees and hears, he uses language that he's very familiar with that have already been included in prophetic passages in the past. And in Zechariah chapter 4, verses 2 through 7, we have, a, we have a, uh, an example of the Holy Spirit who's identified as a, a sevenfold lamp but he's clearly the Holy Spirit. And this image is repeated again in Revelation chapter 4, verse 5. And so we'll just leave that for now with that. But I just want to point out that the Trinity is involved. This is a message from God in his fullness to his church. And we're going to see all of the persons of the Godhead throughout the book. But it's also a second coming message. It's a message that deals with the end of time, right? We see in verse 7, Behold, he is coming with the clouds. He's coming with the clouds. Now, John had spent three years with Jesus. He knew him. He had heard him speak of his return before. But he had spoken in language that was hard to put together in full. And so what's going to be revealed now is going to be new to John. John has heard Jesus talk about his coming back, but he's going to see it in vivid color now. This revelation is going to fill in a lot of blanks. What's the deal with the clouds? There's some sort of a vehicle that Jesus is going to ride? No. If you go back to Acts chapter 1 verse 9 in the ascension of Jesus, do you remember there when the disciples are there and Jesus ascended and the writer of Acts tells us, and when he had said these things, they were looking, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and what happened? A cloud took him out of their sight, right? There's a cloud that, that surrounded him and took him out of their sight. And while the disciples are staring up at that in awe, trying to figure out what in the world just happened, there are angels who appear and say to them, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking at heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come, right? He will come in the same way you saw him go into heaven. He went up in, a clouds, in the clouds, and he's coming down with clouds. What is all this? Well, it's a 
powerful Old Testament picture of the powerful presence of the Lord. In Exodus chapter 13, verse 21, you maybe remember when the Israelites are wandering through the wilderness, we're told, and the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of what? Of cloud, in a pillar of cloud. It was a, a, a visible representation of the powerful presence of Almighty God in a cloud. And in Exodus chapter 16, verses 10 and following, the glory of the Lord appeared in a cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, so the glory of God, the powerful presence of God, is represented often in a cloud. And it's out of the cloud in the Old Testament that the voice of God spoke. And so when Jesus returns here, coming with the cloud, the symbolism is ripe. He's coming back as the reigning Lord and the conquering king. And he is, in fact, God returning to earth. He's coming in the clouds. This is a revelation. It's a message that deals with the details surrounding what happens when that takes place. But it's also a message that brings us a blessing. Did you catch that in verse 3? Now this is probably something to meditate on if you've put the book of Revelation on the shelf because it's hard to understand. Listen to what, listen to what we're told. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and who keep what's written. This isn't just a book for theological debate. This isn't just a book for people to sort of kick around and try and figure out dates and times and understand imagery and argue about theology. This is a book that was intended to be a blessing to the church, a blessing to God's people. And there's a blessing that comes from reading it. There's a blessing that comes from hearing it. And we're told there's a blessing that comes from keeping what's written in it. Just for note, this is the first of seven Beatitudes in the book of Revelation. But it's also a message that declares worldwide judgment. We need to understand that. This is a message that's going to reveal God's ultimate end judgment for all of his enemies, for all who've rejected him. He's coming in the clouds or coming with the clouds, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. This is terrifying, right? When he comes on the clouds, he's not coming for, for a happy visit. It's not like his first visit to earth when he came quietly in Bethlehem as a, as a babe. And it isn't like his three years of public ministry in the, on the earth where he was gracious and kind and forgiving, sacrificing his own life on a cross. He's coming back this time in a powerful display of his power and to make good on all of his promises and all of his threats. And those who are the recipients of those threats will immediately know who he is and they will wail on account of him, we're told. This is not a, a wail of repentance. This is a wail that comes from the heart of one who is encountering face to face his creator for the very first time and who knows he has no hope but judgment. It is a message of judgment on a world that has rejected Christ. If you read the rest of the book, you'll see that in vivid detail. It's a wailing of regret and a wailing of fear. Because for everyone who's rejected Jesus Christ, when he returns, he's coming as judge and executioner. And that's how he'll be, he'll be encountered at that day by everyone who rejects him. It is a message of universal judgment. 
When he returns, everybody will see him, we're told, and all will immediately know where they stand. And there will be deep regret and grief. But it's also a message that demands a response. This book wasn't delivered to us to confuse us or to frighten us or to entertain us. It was delivered for believers to read, to understand, and to obey. We're intended to keep the message that's written in this book. And particularly the portion that we're going to give attention to in these next weeks, it's, it's going to be very clear and very applicational to the church. And the question is, are we willing to obey it? Because that's the charge that's put in front of us. We're not just to read it and kick it around. We're to read it and to do it. It demands a response. But more than anything, this book is a book that contains a central figure, and that central figure is Jesus Christ in all of his glory. When you read Revelation, it is very easy to get caught up in all the images and all the symbolism and all of the timing and to obscure the main feature of the book. And the main feature of the book is the Lord Jesus Christ. He's described in this, in this first chapter in so many different ways that we simply don't have the time to explore in full detail of all of them. But just look at how he's described in, in verse 5 and 6. Jesus Christ, he, he's the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of kings on the earth. He's a faithful witness. He is a, a faithful witness to the message of the Father. The Father gave him a message, and he faithfully delivered it. But he's also faithful witness to the truth. His whole life and ministry was faithfulness to the truth of God and delivering the truth of God, even at the cost of his very own life. When he stands before Pilate in John chapter 18, and, John, and, John, and Pilate is trying to figure out a way to let him go in some way, or at least in Pilate's mind, trying to figure out how to get out of a jam, Jesus says to him, listen, it's for this purpose that I was born and this purpose that I've come into the world to bear witness to the truth. He has been a faithful witness to the truth his whole existence. And the book of Revelation is no exception to that rule. He's also the firstborn from the dead. A simple, a simple reference to his resurrection, right? He was a, he's a resurrected king. He, he died and he was buried and three days later he rose from the dead. The resurrection, God's validation that his death was a, a full and complete payment for the sins of all who would believe upon him. And that the penalty of death had been removed from all believers because Christ had paid the price and had conquered death. He says later on in this book, at the end of it, he says, look, I'm the one who was, living, who was dead, but now I'm alive and I live forevermore. I'm the living one. He says, in fact, I had the keys to death and Hades. What does that mean? Well, keys are, are, are simply a means for, for entrance and exit. He has, the, he has full control over who comes and who goes. He's the firstborn from the dead, and all who place their faith and trust in him will follow him through the grave and out into his very presence. These suffering believers don't need to be afraid. They don't need to be afraid of Caesar. They don't need to be afraid of what's going to happen to them. Because the worst thing an emperor can do is kill your body and put you in a grave. Right? But Jesus holds the keys to that grave. And so you don't have to be afraid of it because he says the moment you die to be absent from the body is to be present with him. 
It's a two-way street. You go in and you come out. And on the other side is the presence of the Lord. Suffering believers don't need to fear death because Christ holds the keys. He's the ruler of the kings of the earth. He's described that way as well, right? He's a resurrected king, and he's sovereign over every other king. One day, every knee will bow, and every tongue confess, Jesus Christ is Lord. Everyone from Donald Trump to the dude down in South, South Korea to every other emperor and ruler and president and king that's ever lived. He is the king who is sovereign over every king, and one day every king will confess that he is that indeed. But in verses 5 and 6, we're told that the one who's the firstborn from the dead, the faithful witness, the ruler of all the kings on the earth, the one who comes in immeasurable glory, is one who loves us. Can you imagine that? He's one who loves us. In spite of our failures, in spite of our, in spite of our re- re- rebellion, in, in spite of all the ways that we fall short of his glory, he loves us. And he's freed us from our sins by his blood. The one who's returning is the one who died. He's the one who who died in your place and in mine. Who died to pay the price that we owed for our sins, but could never pay. He paid it. He took the full wrath of God on our behalf, and by his own blood shed on a cross, paid our penalty, our debt. And in doing so, he freed us from the enslavement to sin. The power of sin to enslave us and the penalty of sin, eternal death, Christ paid and purchased for us because he loves us. It's important to remember as you read the book of Revelation that the one who's portrayed in all of his majestic glory and power is the one who also loves you. He loves you. In fact, the whole motive in his coming, we're told in the most familiar verse in all of the Bible, John 3, 16, right? The reason that the Son was sent is because God so loved the world. Well, the vision John sees is remarkable. After he hears the voice, he sees Christ. He sees him. And he, you can read in verses 12 through 16, he tries to find words to put to that. But he just is grasping for things that make sense to him. His hair is white and it's, it's like snow. He's, he's, he's got uh, feet that are like bronze. And all of these sort of pictures of this stunning, majestic image of Christ, all built out of Daniel chapter 7, if you want to go back and look, and Daniel chapter 10 as well. Imagery of the risen Christ. It is a majestic image of Jesus. A majestic image of Jesus unlike anything. And it identifies him with the Old Testament prophecy of the Son of Man who is to come. I I can imagine when John saw that, his mind must have gone back 60 years to the transfiguration, don't you think? Because it's been about that long. But that's the only time John has any context for something like this. Because then he did see for a moment... Jesus unveil his glory to some degree on that mountaintop. And so he saw that, and this is even a further unveiling of that. So maybe that's why John was chosen for this thing. 
They might have terrified any of the rest of them. White hair, eyes like blazing fire that, that see things as they are before whom nothing is hidden. A voice with a sound like rushing waters, like a powerful waterfall that drowns out every other sound in a mouth that, it out, that out of it comes something like a two-edged sword, a message that comes from his mouth that's powerful and has force and is completely invincible. And John says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. He was absolutely terrified. He hit his face. He was stunned, stunned, horrified, terrified, terrified, not terrified, in the presence of that kind of glory and majesty and holiness. And Jesus, the compassionate one, reaches down, puts his hand on him, says, don't, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. It's me. I'm the first and the last. First and the last. If you remember when we read this a moment ago, God the Father identified himself as the Alpha and the Omega. Here Jesus is saying the exact same thing about himself. It's a clear indication of his equality with the Father, that he is part of the Godhead, that he is indeed divine. There was a state, a state of theology survey that comes out every two years that came out just this past week and was publicized in, in this survey taken in the U.S., it was taken among just Americans in general and then among evangelicals. And one statement in that survey was this. Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. 52% of Americans agree with that. Only 36% disagree. What's more troubling than that is that 30% of people who identify as evangelicals agree with that statement. One third of the people who identified as evangelicals believe that Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. They can't have read Revelation chapter 1. Because the one who's revealed here is not just a great teacher. He is none other than God himself incarnate. The first and last, the Alpha, the Omega. He is divine. So what's the message of all this? Well, there's a few things. Jesus Christ is absolutely glorious. And he's worthy of all praise. He is worthy of all praise. There is none like him. The other message is to, 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 to reject Jesus is absolutely insane. To reject one like this, who's coming to be your eternal judge and executioner with eternal consequences is insane. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and you've never bowed your life before him in repentance of your sin, in confession of your sin, committing your heart and life to him, then you are the biggest fool ever. Because he's coming soon. And on that day, you'll meet him, and you'll be like one who wails. Confess your sin. Trust Jesus now before it's too late. And then finally, even in the midst of persecution, even in the midst of uncertainty, faithful believers have absolutely nothing to fear. Nothing to fear. The glorious Jesus displayed in this chapter and in this book is your king. He is your savior, and he loves you. 
and there is none who can stand before him. And nobody can touch you or lay a hair on your head apart from his divine providence in your life. And even if he allows that in your life, he's got that too. Because he holds the keys to death and hell. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, in these times that are uncertain and frightening, it is refreshing to focus on you. We thank you for this little glimpse that we got today through, through the pen of John, your, your faithful apostle, of who you are. You are indeed a faithful one. You're the faithful witness. You are the king over every king. You are the glorious and majestic son of man who comes in the clouds who comes with divine power and might to execute judgment on all of the world, to right every wrong, and to fulfill every promise of blessing to your people. You come as the sovereign king of the universe, the Lord of truth, the Lord of glory, and you love us. Lord, give us a confidence and give us a hope in you not in our ability to face the things that we face in our culture, not the ability to withstand the things that are the challenges and temptations that come our way, not in our own ability to sort of be cunning as we deal with the things of our culture, but give us eyes that look to you, our glorious King, who understand that our ultimate allegiance is, is not to any nation, but it's to your kingdom where you've made us citizens and priests. Fortify our faith. Fortify our peace. Fortify our confidence and our hope. Eliminate fear. May we be bold in our witness, faithful witnesses for you. And for the one who doesn't know you, Lord Jesus, I pray that as they contemplate your coming, they would be absolutely horrified at what stands in the future for them and that they would, like John, fall on their face before you in confession and repentance and find in you an open hand of love that will receive them and save their very soul. We pray for these things in your holy name, Lord Jesus. Amen.